Well, hey, good morning, LifePoint. Ooh, am I on? There we go. Good morning. Thank you. <laughs> I was so confident. You are. Love it. Well, if we haven't met yet, my name is Brad, and I'm the, the worship and youth pastor here at LifePoint. And as you probably saw, we're currently in the middle of our series on the book of Joshua. And I hope and I pray that you, uh, outside of Sunday to Sunday, are, are reading through the book of Joshua uh, in your personal time as well. And if you're not doing that, I would heavily, heavily encourage you to do so. It's been so, I know, beneficial in, in my personal life, but uh, I believe that we will all walk out of here, um, you know, growing with every week, just, you know, di- digging a little deeper and, and not having to be so confused on context and things like that. So if you're not reading through in your personal time, I would heavily encourage you to do that. So last week we talked about the reality that God wants our hearts and not our abilities, right? And we've seen this modeled in the person of Joshua throughout this series, right? His obedience to God through his leadership uh, of the nation of Israel, his trust in the Lord through the preparations of the physical battles that uh, we'll actually start digging into for the first time this morning. And so here's uh, our bottom line this morning before we start, just the main idea, the main takeaway, our bottom line is this, that what you focus on determines what you pursue. And this isn't like a revolutionary uh, or even probably a foreign concept to most of you. Uh, I'm sure you've seen this in your own life, but, but it's true. What you focus on determines what you pursue. And so if you haven't been here or if you're unfamiliar with what's going on in the book of Joshua, the nation of Israel basically uh, was enslaved to Egyptians, right? Uh, They were enslaved in Egypt. They were led to freedom through the middle of the Red Sea as God parted it through through Moses, right? This is leading up to the book of Joshua. And so the Israelites uh, cross the Red Sea, then they begin wandering in the desert before they finally can enter the promised land. And now Joshua, who's this, this new leader of the nation of Israel, is going to lead them into one battle after another, one at a time, in order to take back the promised land. And so that's kind of where we're at leading into the book of Joshua. And if you were here last week, or if you were watching online, we left off just before Joshua was about to lead them, uh, lead the Israeli army to attempt to take over the city of Jericho. And this would actually be the first battle that takes place. So Jericho was an important and a strategic location to attack because it controlled migration routes between the north and the south, but it also uh, controlled migration routes between the east and the west due to its relatively centralized location. Now the problem was that despite the relatively low population within the city of Jericho, The city itself was actually well fortified. If you know the story, you know that it was surrounded by these massive walls, right, that could potentially make it difficult for Joshua and the army uh, of Israel to seize. Despite their, their obvious size advantage, right, when it comes to army. So God gives these specific instructions to in order to seize the city of Jericho. We're just going to gloss over this just to give us some context, kind of set us up for the text this morning. But God gives this specific instruction to to Joshua here in chapter 6. He says this, 
is verse three. He says, you shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. When they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So basically, God is saying, Joshua, I want you to take the army, and I want you to circle the city of Jericho once per day for the first six days. On the seventh day, circle it seven times, have these seven priests blow their trumpets made of ram's horn, uh, blow the trumpets, and when the, the entire nation of Israel hears the, the sound of the trumpets, everyone should shout, and when they shout, the walls will come tumbling down. And so Joshua passes this on, right? He instructs the nation of Israel, if you know the story, he instructs the nation of Israel to do what the Lord has just commanded him. And he finishes by saying this, when the walls come down, rush in and slay everyone in the city except for Rahab and her family. And if you were here with us as we looked at the life of Rahab, you know the story. If you weren't here, uh, go back and read chapter 2 for context leading into this. So he says, rush in and slay everyone in the city except for Rahab and her family, but leave all the possessions, right? All the possessions other than gold, silver, bronze, and iron. You're to take gold, silver, bronze, and iron and put it into the Lord's treasury for that belongs to him. Those things are holy to the Lord and belong to him. And everything else, all the other possessions will be burned with the rest of the city. And so the nation of Israel is obedient. If, again, if you know the story, you've, you've probably heard this story before, uh, most of you. And, and uh, the, the nation of Israel is obedient to the Lord's commands. They, they circle the city once per day, seventh day, right? They get to the seventh day. They circle it seven times, and they witness this miracle of the walls collapsing, and they never have to lift a sword. And so this is the context of what has happened here leading into the text that we'll actually be really diving into this morning. But I want to pause here for just a second and ask you guys this. Have you ever become so fixated on something, like so tunnel vision, you you lose sight of everything else, and then as a result, uh, you end up making a terrible decision? Has anyone ever been there? Just me? Okay, perfect. Good. Glad to know I'm not alone. Well, when I was three years old, uh, my family was in the process of moving to Tucson, Arizona. This is where I grew up, right? I would spend the next 17 years of my life here. And uh, as we were pulling into the, the neighborhood of the house that we, would be, that we were renting at the time, uh, my dad gives my brother, my sister, and myself some very simple and specific instructions, right? He, he takes a moment to explain, hey... Okay, we were moving from Southern California, the mountains of Southern California. And he says, look, uh, the plants here might look soft and cuddly, but they're not, right? Talking, to, talking about cacti. He says they're actually the opposite. And so he gives us this instruction. Do not touch them. Don't even look at them. Just go straight into the house. Don't worry about anything, right? And so as we, pull into the dri- as we pull into the driveway, I get out of the car, and uh, I see this massive prickly pear cactus. It's, oh, good, you know where, where the story's going. That's good. 
you're ahead of me. Um, and so, so I noticed this massive prickly pear cactus in the front yard. Now, uh, admittedly, this, the, most of these memories are still a little f- fuzzy. I was only three years old at the time, so I'm going to tell the story from my dad's perspective uh, because of that reason exactly. So when I get out of the car, apparently... I became so fixated on this prickly pear cactus. Now, if you have ever seen a prickly pear, uh, they can grow not only tall, but spread out super wide. And uh, I apparently decided to, in my snakeskin boots that were about five sizes too big, in my hot pink shorts, uh, it was the 90s, give me grace. Uh, (laughs) Apparently, I decided to bolt directly into the middle of this very large prickly pear cactus <laughs> and then promptly uh, begin screaming my head off as I'm covered in these little hair-like splinters all over my body. <laughs> and so here is an incredible, if you want to see an incredible display of a father's love for his son, It is modeled in my father in this moment when he decided, despite him wearing shorts, because we're moving in the summer and it's 120 degrees outside, my father decides to walk into the cactus, despite all those things, pick me up and pull me out, right? He he rescued me from this sticky situation. (laughs) Thank you. And... uh, That is an incredible display of this father's love for dad jokes. So that's good. (laughs) Stupid. Um, Thanks for indulging me. Thanks for laughing at those stupid jokes. But here's the point. Here's here's the the whole point. I was so fixated on this cactus that I had completely lost sight of my father's specific and simple instruction, right? And it sounds like most of you guys can kind of relate on some level Right, Most of you have been there. And this morning, we're actually going to take a look at someone in the Bible, in the book of Joshua. We're going to look at someone who had ignored very simple and specific instruction. So if you would, uh, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Joshua. We're going to be in chapter 7. And if uh, you don't have your Bibles, that's all right. We will have all the verses on the screen. Now, if you remember where we left off, just kind of in the the recap of chapter 6, Israel had just witnessed this, this miracle of these walls tumbling down at the city of Jericho. And now their next strategic plan of attack would be this city called Ai. And so we're going to pick it up here in Joshua 7, uh, verse number 2. It says this, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel. And he said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. Now this is a familiar pattern, right? Very strategic move. Joshua sends some spies up to kind of scout out uh, the city that they're going to be attacking. And these spies notice basically that this is a really small city. It should be easily overthrown. And so they give Joshua counsel. They say, you know, let's give some of the army a rest, and, uh, but we'll still send up more than enough to take out this little, this little city, this little town, right, in Ai. So let's read on to see what happens in verse 4. Here's the result. It says, so about 3,000 men went up there from, from the people. 
and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. So Israel just watched God uh, tear down the walls of this city, this well-fortified city, and basically hand it over to them. So they're probably pretty confident, right, leading into this attack. They see that it's a small city. They probably are thinking, man, this should be an easy victory. Let's send up about two or 3,000 men. They end up sending 3,000 men, which would be more than enough, on paper anyway, more than enough to take over and seize the city. Except against all odds, they end up in such a bad situation, they end up having to flee, and they watch 36 of their men killed in their retreat. This doesn't really make sense, right? Why would God lead them into victory at Jericho and then into defeat here? Well, something you may notice uh, as you read through this book is that Israel seeks God first before attacking Jericho, right? Joshua consults the Lord and he waits to hear the plans from God as to how to proceed. And then the whole nation is, is... obedient to those plans, right? They carry it out. They walk around the walls, something that doesn't make sense, but they trusted wholly in the Lord. And as a result, they see this miracle of God fighting their battles on their behalf. But then they deliberately don't seek God here, right? They depend on their own strength. And so after this defeat, Joshua now falls on his face before the Lord and he asks him, why would he allow this defeat? And here's how God responds to him in in verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, Get up, why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things among you. Now, if you remember, when Israel took Jericho, Joshua gave specific instruction for nobody to take any possessions except gold, silver, bronze, and iron. And the gold, silver, bronze, and iron would be put directly into the Lord's treasury because that all of those precious metals belonged to the Lord. And now Joshua's finding out that someone has actually disobeyed this very simple and specific instruction. And so God gives him further instruction on how to discover who it was who has stolen these things. In verse 16, it says, So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of Zerahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. So Joshua basically has gotten this instruction from the Lord to hold these these sort of uh, trials, Right, starting first by tribe, then uh, casting lots. There's a whole lots system, right? Figures out which tribe it is, and then he narrows it down by clan, and then eventually by family, 
then by household until he can go man by man in this household. And he discovers that it was this man by the name of Achan. And actually Achan is who we're primarily going to be focusing on for the rest of this morning. In verse 19, Joshua confronts Achan. It says this, Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Now take a moment to put yourself in Achan's shoes. Okay, you just made this bad decision. You've disobeyed this very specific and simple instruction that your leader, the leader of the nation, has given you. You may have thought you got away with it or nobody else will know. It, it might, they won't even be affected by this decision, right? And then all of a sudden, this, this leader that you just disobeyed is standing directly in front of you. He says, I know you have disobeyed me. Now, uh, tell me everything. Okay, I don't know what you would do in that situation, but for me personally, I would probably start spilling my guts. I would tell him absolutely everything, right, in hopes that maybe my life would be spared. Let's, let's read on to see how Achan reacts here in verse 20. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. Verse 21. When I saw the spoil, among the spoil, a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Achan basically spills his guts, right? He tells him everything. He admits to everything to Joshua. And in verse 21, he actually outlines four specific contributing factors to his sin. And this should be a familiar pattern to all of us in our own lives, in our own sin. The first thing he says is he saw, right? He saw the beautiful cloak. He saw the shekels of silver. He saw this gold bar. This all started with merely seeing these things. And isn't that true of most of our sin as well? It's so subtle, but we typically see something that then triggers this temptation, right? In Achan's case, it was the cloak, the the silver, and the gold. You know, sin often begins with our eyes, and then it moves into our hearts. It's a very internal, right, beginning. James actually addresses this very process when he says in James 1, he says, uh, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and then sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So Achan sees these things, right? And then he starts having this a little bit of a a struggle here, and then uh, again, it it starts with him merely seeing, and then it starts to move into his heart, and we get to our second point, that he coveted. So he saw, and then he coveted. These things. We're going to define coveting simply as, as desiring something that does not belong to you. Okay, so after seeing these possessions, Achan then desires these things which don't belong to him. And this is where the conflict really starts growing in his heart. See, coveting occurs when our desire for something supersedes our desire for the Lord. It's a form of idolatry, really. It's the lie that somehow... This thing, whatever it is, somehow this thing will bring me fulfillment. 
that somehow, uh, if, I, if I only had this thing, my life would be complete. Right? So why do we covet? Well, I think because we forget who God is. We take our eyes off of him, right? And we see something else, which then produces this longing, this desire for whatever that is, whatever that thing is. And we lose our sense of awe of who God is. We, we forget what he has done. We fail to see him clearly, and, and sometimes we fail to see him at all at this time. You know, I've been so convicted in my study throughout this week just because I've, I've seen this in my own life recently. Some of you may know that Taylor and I have been looking, my wife Taylor and I have been looking at, um, we've been looking at houses recently. And if you're unaware, the, the housing market is, whew, yeah, the laugh says it all. That's, yep. It's completely skyrocketed, right? I mean, houses are being sold sight unseen for well over asking price. And that's made the process very difficult for us. But what I noticed this week and even last week is how distraught I was over not being able to buy a house. You know, there was this weird dichotomy where part of me was hopeless and the other part of me was so fixated on any for sale sign that I saw, right? That, I, I, that was my entire focus. See, what I'd been believing recently is a lie that in order to be fulfilled, that I need to own a house. And the evidence of this was how often I caught myself talking about it, right, talking about real estate. Because what we choose to talk about is, is typically the, the evidence of what our hearts desire most. What we long for is naturally where our conversation will go. And so let me remind you what I've been reminded of constantly and convicted of this week is that God alone is the only one who can fulfill our hearts and our lives. That everything in this world is rubbish in comparison to him. And if we forget these things, then this weekly gathering becomes trivial. If we forget these things, the empty tomb becomes just another story. I'm heartbroken over my own sin and the lies that I've been believing recently. I'm heartbroken over the way that we as believers are so easily distracted, right? That we're so easily deceived into believing that we need something else more than we need God. And recently, I'm heartbroken that I hear more about things like who sits in the White House or who doesn't from Christians around the nation than I hear about the miracles and the ways that God is working around the globe. Listen, if we spend all of our time consumed by things like who sits in the White House, then we completely forget about the one on his throne in heaven. Do not forget who God is. Achan had just witnessed God part the Jordan River for the entire nation of Israel to, to cross on dry ground. Right? He just witnessed the walls of Jericho come tumbling down, and the Israeli army didn't even have to lift a sword in order to take this city. He probably heard stories from his parents and grandparents about the Passover, 
about the parting of the Red Sea. And yet, he forgot who God was. He took his eyes off of God. He desired these objects more than he desired God. He forgot what he had already just witnessed God do. And this led him to the third action. When this sin goes from internal and manifests externally, he took. As a result of Achan's desire and the conflict in his heart, he actively disobeyed God. If you notice with me in chapter 6, verse 19, Joshua is very clear in his instruction when he says this, but all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. See, when Achan took these things, he had robbed the Lord. He took both gold and silver, which belonged to the Lord, And the reality is we rob God all the time. We do this very thing. For those of you who have devoted your lives to the Lord, do you realize that your life has been purchased by the blood of Christ and now belongs to him? Every time you choose to fulfill your own desires above his, you are robbing him of what is rightly his. I think sometimes we forget what it means for Jesus to be Lord. That means he now owns us, that, that we submit to him above ourselves. Let me share with you what one of the high school students said at our youth night this past Wednesday. It's so relevant. He said, you know, sometimes we act like God is here for us instead of the other way around. Right? You want to talk about... <laughs> wisdom <laughs> you know like like we forget that god wasn't created for us but we were actually created for him and in our selfishness we turn away from him do you see are you starting to see how similar to aiken we are here and how we kind of fall into this very same pattern so now that the sin has begun its external descent there's the fourth thing that Achan confesses, and that's this, he hid. He hid these things, right? He buried them in the ground. He hid them in his tent. It's clear now that Achan is fully aware that what he has done is wrong, right? This isn't a mistake. He's well aware, and so he decides to hide the objects under the tent, hoping to keep them for himself without anyone else noticing other than likely his family. We have a tendency to do this with our sin too, don't we? Just bury it in the ground, hide it. We as Christians are really good about admitting to sin in the distant past, but we're also really good at hiding our current sin. And see, Aiken's probably thinking he's not hurting anyone, right? Because nobody knows about this secret sin. Well, we do this too, don't we? We believe that our sin only affects us, and so we try to hide it to avoid any embarrassment. But your sin doesn't affect just you, despite what you may want to believe. Sometimes it actually affects others in ways you don't even see. Does anyone remember how many men died as a result of Achan's sin? 
36. Right now, it's obvious that his sin affected those 36 people. But did you think about the wives of those men who are now widows? Did you think about the children of those men who are now fatherless? I doubt Achan had any idea how his sin would impact the lives of not only those individuals, but on a greater scale, the entire nation of Israel in defeat at the city of Ai. But your sin affects more than just you. Now, if you're wondering what happened to Achan, unfortunately, it's not a happy ending. Achan was sentenced to death, and then his body was burned. And though that may seem harsh to some of us, this was the price for robbing the Lord. This is what was just. And so this is the pattern that Achan carried out. He saw, he coveted, he took, and he hid. I said earlier a couple times that this is probably a familiar pattern to all of us in our own lives. This is actually a familiar pattern if you go into scripture. This is a familiar pattern within other stories we read within the Bible. Why is that? It's because we have a very real and very intrusive enemy whose primary goal is to create barriers between us and God. He's very involved in our lives, and though he's not creative, he is crafty. And so he'll use very similar patterns in each of our lives, but he'll do it in deceiving and subtle ways so that we don't even pick up on it. And actually, if we go back to original sin, we see this exact same pattern in Genesis 3. Satan comes and tempts Eve, right? And we see this pattern where she sees the fruit, she covets the fruit, she takes the fruit, and then she hides from God. It's the exact same formula. The, true, the same is true with, with David and Bathsheba, right? He saw, he coveted, he took, and then he tried to hide it, tried to bury his sin. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. But you may be asking yourselves, so how then, how do we fight against falling into this pattern well, if you remember, the, the very first step in all of this is seeing, right? So what do you have your eyes fixed on? What are you focusing on day to day? I'm, I'm so grateful that you're here on Sunday worshiping the, God, you know, the Lord, but what about the other six days of your week? The reality is what you focus on determines what you pursue, So how then do we focus on God in our daily lives? Well, we have to remind ourselves of who he is. We have to remind ourselves of what he's done in our lives, what he's currently doing in our lives, and ultimately, as a result, we will naturally stand in awe of him. When we remind ourselves of who God is, we will run after him instead of other things. The moment we take our eyes off of him, we pursue something else. Let me quickly share with you one of the miracles that God has done in my life. And this is true for most, if not all of us in this room. 
I know that at the end of this life, I will stand in God's courtroom before him, fully aware that because of my sin, I, like Achan, deserve to be put to death and thrown into fire. And though I should be mourning, I will instead be rejoicing. Rejoicing because of the one who has already paid that debt on my behalf. Rejoicing because I now get to spend eternity with him. Rejoicing because long before that day even comes, he's given me life. I'm going to challenge you this week. Every morning when you wake up, before your feet even hit the ground, take time to remind yourself of one thing that God has done in your life or is currently doing in your life. And then take time to spend praising him for it because he is worthy of the glory. He is worthy of all honor and all praise. Give him what is rightly his. Let's respond. Let's stand up and respond in worship. What you focus on determines what you pursue. So let's be a people who fix our eyes on Jesus, not just every Sunday, but every day of our lives, every moment of our lives. Let's be people who do not get distracted by the things of this earth. And let's be a people who remind one another of the glory of who God is that we would challenge each other, that we would encourage one another to pursue him above the things of this world. Have an awesome Sunday, and we will see you next week.